And now at this time, our kids from kindergarten through second grade, you're dismissed. They go, they go to the library for their story time. Uh, so kindergarten through second grade. And then kind of programming note for parents uh, during our second hour, you know, we have the discipleship with our adult classes and for our kids' classes, all of our kids are going to check in in the hall and then we're all going to begin on the playground. So we're going to start on the playground, and then we'll take them and uh, disperse them to the appropriate locations, but all starting on the playground. And as they go, we're continuing our series where we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And our goal is to take each command and kind of share what the command is and then illustrate it. And uh, last week, we laid out what the second commandment is. You shall not make for yourselves images of God... And then what I want to do this Sunday morning is to, to illustrate it and to help us think about this because this is a command, on the one hand, it seems kind of obvious, but as you start to dig and go underneath the surface, we can see how tempting it is to make an image of God and make God in our own image and even more tempting to make Jesus in our own image. And uh, I don't know if you heard that Martin Scorsese, the famous director, is working on a uh, film on Jesus and the life of Jesus. And I, some get nervous whenever there's Hollywood representations about Jesus. Sometimes they try to do a really good job of faithfully uh, presenting it. Other times you can kind of hear things about uh, Jesus that might make you squirm a little bit. Like, for example, um, if you remember the Will Ferrell movie, Talladega Nights. And I, I thought about showing this clip, but it's probably not appropriate for church. But if you remember the, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, good for you. But if you have, you remember when, uh, and I think it's a Thanksgiving Day feast where they have all the pizza, like every fast food item that you can purchase all spread out on the table. And Will Ferrell's character, if you don't know the movie, it's kind of a satire of uh, really Southern culture. So he's a famous race car driver and he wants to say the blessing and he prays to sweet baby Jesus and then it's a pretty irreverent prayer that kind of goes on and it starts out dear eight pounds six, six ounce newborn baby Jesus in your golden fleece diapers with your curled up fat balled up little fist all pawned in the air and then uh, goes on from there and then finally his father-in-law has had enough and he just shouts out he was a man he had a beard and then he stops and Will Ferrell says, well, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races. I get the money. I work too hard for, the, you know, it goes on. And then his wife chimes in and goes, well, it is a little off-putting for you to pray to a baby. And then his friend Cal chimes in, well, I like the picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. Because it says, I like, I like want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. And I like to party, so that's the Jesus I pray to. And then the son, I think his name is Texas Ranger, uh, chimes in and says, well, I like to think of Jesus as a ninja, secretly, you know, jumping around, slashing the bad guys. And so each of them, whether they knew it or not, were in a gross violation of the second commandment <laughs> of crafting an image of who Jesus is and making it in his own likeness. And it's not just, you know... Uh, Hollywood screenwriters that make me nervous. Often whenever politicians start talking about Jesus, I get nervous. Here's an article that I read. This was before the Donald Trump-Hillary Clinton campaign, but it was written by Linda Seeger, and the title of the article was Jesus Rode a Donkey, 
why the Republicans don't have a corner on Christ. And then she went through kind of the different policy things and says, well, like, um, you look at climate change. Jesus rode a donkey, an eco-friendly mode of transportation, so certainly he wouldn't drive an SUV. Think about things like criminal justice reform, you know, a woman caught in adultery, just let her go. He never spoke about abortion or homosexuality, so obviously those weren't big deals to him, and it kind of capstone with the Jesus I know is a Jesus who says, love your enemies and turn the other cheek. That is not the hellfire and brimstone Jesus of the fundamentalist. So it's interesting. Now, there's a whole way you could evaluate the theological merits of that claim, but it's pretty obvious that someone's just kind of taken, uh, here's our policy desires, opinions, and I'm just going to craft Jesus in that image. And once again, that's the thing we're not supposed to do in the second commandment. But one of the challenges is not just for kind of actors or politicians. All of us are in danger of fashioning an image of who we think Jesus is and what he is supposed to do. There's a great book by Stephen Nichols, the president of uh, Ligonier or or the Formed Bible College in in, uh, Sanford. And uh, he's got this book called Jesus Made in America and just goes through each stage of kind of American history and how there are certain images of Jesus that were so popular in the popular culture. And all of them uniquely reflect certain uh, aspects of what was happening in the country at the time. And it's very subtle. And to illustrate this command, what I want to be, the obvious example in Exodus would be to go the golden calf. I mean, that's where Moses is on the mountain, and they literally do the thing that God has told them not to do here. But I wanted to look at another example that I've been thinking a lot about recently, and it's the example of John the Baptist. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11, because what I want to show us is, all right, if, if John the Baptist is in danger of doing this, then this is something all of us can sympathize with or need to be warned against. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11. And, you know, we went through, for three years, went through the Gospel of Matthew, so spent a lot of time there, but it's very helpful in Matthew to understand the literary movements and kind of where you are. Matthew structures his book around the five great teaching blocks, uh, and each five teaching block is a sermon, so you have this dynamic back and forth between sermon and then life, and then he's going to illustrate in each of the kind of living components about something about who Jesus is and what does it mean to follow him. So teaching block one, the great Sermon on the Mount, is the great teaching block on what does it mean to bring the kingdom in? What are, what are kingdom disciples supposed to be and look like? And then you have eight and nine are uh, illustrations of the great deeds of Jesus. And he gives these ten different examples of Jesus displaying who he is. And then ten, you have the next big teaching block about mission. How is his disciples going to go out into the world and going to bring the kingdom down here, bring it from heaven to earth? So it's this teaching on mission. And then starting in chapter Chapter 11, 11 and 12 is all about now that the kingdom is coming into the earth. It's coming down from heaven into the earth, and then it's going to face opposition. So it's coming, but there's going to be opposition. And the great kind of the irony, the shocker, is that the opposition in some ways begins with John the Baptist. 
So following chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or that word offense is the word scandalon. It's not scandalized, does not stumble, does not trip up. And so here we have John. And John is, this is the last days of his life. He has been taken, put into prison by Herod. Uh, He will be beheaded very shortly. He's been in prison for six months, languishing. And you see him here, and he's expressing doubts. He sends it to Jesus, hold on, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for an, another? And remember, John, you know, in one sense, Jesus says here in a few minutes about John, or earlier in, uh, in his ministry, that there has not been one born of a woman, so it's pretty, like, <laughs> there's not been another person born of a woman who's greater than John. And so if John could struggle with doubts and and disappointments and difficulty, then any of us can. I mean, he was the forerunner of the Messiah. His whole life was dedicated to preparing the way so the Messiah had come. And he had delivered these amazing messages about, uh, you know, behold, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And after me is one who is coming and he's going to baptize you with the spirit and fire. And the winnowing fork is in his hands. And you just wait. When he comes, the kingdom is coming. And then here John is languishing in prison. And it seems like, wait, 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 wait. He is not doing the things that I expect he should be doing. I mean, is this how, like, if you're the Messiah, is this how you treat your friends? You let them languish in a prison after they've faithfully preached and prepared the way for you? I mean, John was a national phenomenon in the now end of his life. I think he's, he's struggling. You know, are you the one to come? So as we look through this, I just want to think about it in a couple different ways. So we're going to, all right, let's think about the wrong image, but the right question, and then we have to watch our steps so we don't stumble over the answer. So just think, all right, the wrong image. Why is John struggling? And I think because what he has done is the most natural thing in the world to do, and it's to construct an image of our expectations about what we expect, kind of this person, this savior of the world to do, and how we expect our life to pan out and play out. So in many ways, he expected the wrong things from him. And you know, there, is, there are few things more powerful in shaping your conception of reality than what your expectations of it are. Sometimes Cynthia and I joke and say, you know, our whole job in marriage counseling is to help properly orient engage couples to proper expectations, at least for the first year of marriage. And so John, you know, I think his expectations of what Jesus was going to do uh, were just not being lived up to. You know, it's kind of like if you walk into a room and you see, you know, just a bed and there's a dresser 
There's a TV, but it's very Spartan, very uh, no, no, no frills, no nonsense. Your perception of whether that's a luxury room or a letdown all depends on the expectations of what you're walking into. So if you think you're walking into the honeymoon suite at the JW Marriott, you're going to be a little disappointed. But if you think you're walking into like minimum security prison cell, you're like, wow, that's pretty nice. It's all about the expectations of what you're entering. And so John's expectations, and this was true across the board. This is one of the great, Jesus used that word, blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. One of the great causes of the scandal during his earthly life is that he was not doing the types of things that they expected the Messiah to do. I mean, they were scandalized by his low birth. I mean, kings don't come into the world from families like this. And they don't live in places like that. Nazareth? I mean, come on. Can anything good come out of there? So they're scandalized. They were scandalized by his ordinary occupation and just his kind of what Isaiah talks about in 53 is they, they were not impressed by his figure and form. I mean, this is a world. Like what happens, remember when King Saul, uh, the first king of Israel, why did the people initially just uh, so resonate with him? It's because he was a head taller than everyone else. He looks the part. And here's someone who's not looking the part or playing the part that they have crafted in their minds. But then notice how he challenges John, because not only does John expect the wrong things from him, and that's, so, uh, that's such a temptation for all of us. Uh, John had misunderstood the scriptures. Notice how Jesus responds. He says, go tell him what you hear and what you see. And then he quotes the passage from Isaiah that John himself had quoted when he is announcing the coming of the Messiah's ministry. And he says, remember, remember. And part of the challenge is like, why do you think this way? Where did you get your idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be and do? It's not from the Bible. This is why we don't make images of God in our, we don't make them because we need the image given to us. Because the image we make is not going to be the same image of who he really is. We need the whole Bible to help correct because we'll just pick and we'll choose. You know, maybe Jesus would send the message back to Ricky Bobby. Where did you get your image of Jesus from? Where did the idea that I would wear a tuxedo t-shirt come from? And it's just, all right, where did the wrong images come from? You know, for John, and maybe the, the political writer in the opening illustration, maybe for John the pain was political. Like he looked out in the world and said, wait a second, like the way the world is is not the way it's supposed to be. And you're the one who's supposed to fix it. Why is it still this way? Why are God's people still oppressed? Why are these things still happening? So maybe it was political dissatisfaction that was causing the scandal. Or maybe it was personal. Maybe it was saying, all right, not why is the world this way? Why is my world this way? Why am I stuck here? Is this what happens to people who give their life to faithfully follow you? Do they wind up in prison about to get their head chopped off? So maybe it was personal thinking, no, I didn't think my life would pan out this way. But either way, it constructed a wrong image of who Jesus was and what he was supposed to do to him and for him. But then notice the question, and I love this question because it just kind of, it, it oozes with both wisdom and pain. And the question is, are you the one to come or should we look to another? 
And in one sense, that's the right first question. Are you the one to come? And I find it so interesting that his question uh, is not like the question of the thief on the cross. See, John is struggling with, all right, it, it, like, it, it, can I put my faith and trust in you? But are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the one who's been prophesied and promised? Are you the one we can place our hope in? Are you the one to come? And it's not like the question like on the thief on the cross. One of the thieves on the cross said, hey, get us down from here and then we'll believe in you. And one of the interesting things is that Jesus is so kind and merciful, but so many people come to him not asking questions but giving conditions. They come with needs and they say, all right, are you the one who will get me out of this mess I'm in? Are you the one who will solve my problem? John doesn't say, are you the one who's going to get me out of here? But he says, are you the one to come? You know, it's one of the great devastations when we kind of look to Jesus and say, all right, are you the one who's going to make me rich, give me purpose, give me the job I want, the wife I want, the look I want? You know, we come with these conditions. And, you know, Jesus is merciful, and when people often come with conditions broken, he will meet them where they are. But you need to know that when you come with conditions, uh, in some way, you know, you come to the one where, like what John says, are you the one who has come? The one we're looking for is the great I am. We're looking for the savior of the world. We're looking for the redeemer of God's people, the restorer of all things. You know, we're not just trying to find someone who's going to make our life easy, happy, successful, comfortable, and safe. So you have to come and say, all right, tell me who you are. Because if he is who he says he is, then when we come to him, that's going to change everything. And if he's not who he says he is, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, why would we go to him anyway? So are you the one to come? And in some ways, that movie from Talladega Nights kind of presents one of the great idols of our age where we often think about Jesus as just kind of our personal assistant to just kind of help manage and make our life just run a little smoother, but that's not who he is. And then the second question I love is, are you the one to come or should we look for another? See, what John knows that if, all right, if you're not the one, someone else is coming. And if I reject you, I will never stop searching for what you've promised to give. And that's the question. Only the Messiah can come and fill these deepest needs and deepest desires. Are you one to come? My life will always be searching for what I'm hoping you can bring and give. A couple years ago, when, uh, our oldest daughter, um, yeah, I'm amazed at genetics because we used to play this game where, I mean, she'd be strapped in as a toddler, you know, almost immobile in the car seat. And if it was just us, I would just scan the radio, just hit scan and whatever song would pop up, whatever genre of music, she, within a second she could hear it and then just start moving appropriately to the beat. It was unbelievable. And she did not get that from her father. <laughs> and so we play this game, but unfortunately, you know, with four kids, we don't get a lot of time where it's just us in the car too often. And about a couple year or two ago, we were riding in the car. And I said, let's play that game we used to play. And so started scanning it. And this was the first tune we heard when we scanned. And she dropped in, just started going. And we let it roll. And it's like, oh, you like that? 
And uh, I got so excited. So like, all right, this, this is a song. Let me tell you about this song. Uh, this song comes from one of my favorite movies that uh, shaped my childhood. So we're going to do a sing-along. Let me pull up another song from that movie, and you sing along with me. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there's no tenderness like before. So we start doing the sing-along. and But I was shocked because she was not really in it and was like, no, 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 I don't want to hear that song. I don't like that song. And I'm like, like, you think you know a person. You live with them. Like, How do you not like the song? What is wrong with the song? You're not going to sing it. She's like, no, I don't like it. It's just too much. And so, well, tell me why you don't like it. She's like, oh, okay, okay, I get it. You love her. You don't have to tell the whole world about it. I'm like, oh. It's like, it's obvious you need to have a discussion, and this shouldn't be public. Y'all are having problems, so go in private and discuss your problems. I thought... I've never thought about it. You, but <laughs> you're exactly right. I mean, as someone who also has somewhat of a level of uncomfortability, uh, being uncomfortable with public displays of emo- emotion, which must be genetic too, because you got that from me, I guess. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. So, but if that's true, because most songs you sing, I mean, they're about love, or you're about to be a, you're moving into the Taylor Swift era, so they're all about breaking up. So, like, I, what should you sing about then? And so, I don't know. I mean, sing about like maybe butterflies or jumping rope. Uh, and, uh, so maybe the world would be better if we had more butterflies songs. And so, so right, let's get back to the point. You're not going to sing this with me? It's like, uh-uh. And so I rolled down the windows and said, went to the next song in the track and said, we're going to sing this. Because the only thing a father can do, you can play the only thing a father of upcoming middle school girls can do is try to embarrass them. So I put this song on, turned it up as loud as it would go, and said, you're going to sing this one with me. Brothers are blaring. It's we're we're trying to become emotionally in tuned with with one another. So we started singing that song. You think about that song. I mean, you're my soul and my heart's inspiration. I say, Maddie, what do you think about that? Said, well, it's kind of sad. <laughs> so no, that that song is tapping into one of the deepest longings of all of our souls, where we're looking for someone. We're looking for someone. Every soul is thirsting. And John knows that soul, ultimate soul thirst will not be satisfied with a romantic partner or a successful career or monetary possessions. I am, are you the one to come or should we look for another? But if it is not you, we will never stop looking. We are looking and he knows this is the, the one who is going to come. Who are we looking for? And the one you're looking to, is he going to be as loving and as forgiving and as powerful as the one who's to come? Is he going to be the one who can take away our guilt, take away our shame, and set the world to right? Are you the one to come? So John is asking the right question, and he's looking in the right direction. And what Jesus gives him, the final warning, is just watch your step. Don't trip over the answer. 
he gives this beautiful blessing, this beatitude, blessed is the one who is not scandalized, offended, tripped up by me. And see, the reality is if you're going to come to the one, you have to come to the real Jesus. You don't get to craft one in your own image who will be safe and secure and a figment of your own imagination and just a sentimental icon. You have to come to him. So if in any way you've never been offended by Jesus, you've never come to the real one. The real one brings offense even to people as great as John the Baptist. You may go back to the opening table dinner at uh, Ricky Bobby's house and think, you know, t-shirt tuxedo. You know, he's not the one who comes in a t-shirt tuxedo. He's both the lion and the lamb. He is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who bears the punishment for those who repent, who's the true priest, who ushers us into the presence of the living God. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of all creation, who at one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. I don't know if that's, you know, party in the front or whatever the, the saying is. You know, he's not some ninja secretly making war on evil samurai. He is the great prophet of God who makes war with the sword of the spirit that comes out of his mouth. And the two things that it's easy to stumble upon are first the claims that he makes. I mean, in some ways, if you look at the claims he actually made, if you don't think they're offensive, you've just never paid attention to what they are. I mean, he says things like, before Abraham was, I am. He's taking on the name of Yahweh himself and saying, I was pre-existent and existed before even Abraham. That's why I caused the, the Jewish leaders to look at it like, what are you talking about? Do you realize you're saying, that if that's not true, that's blasphemy and you deserve to die. He makes the claims that he's going to come back from the dead and that he is able and has the ability, the authority, and the right to forgive people's sins and that he can set you right in God's presence. He says that if you trust in me, you will never taste death. And you think, who makes claims like this? He says, I am the light of the world. And you think, okay, either... That's true, or you're the most giant megalomaniac that has ever existed. I mean, the claims are staggering. He's not just some cosmic Mr. Rogers that calls us to sit at his feet. He makes some remarkable claims, and Jesus wants people to, to hear the claims. But then the other thing that's also as offensive is his cross. This is what Paul says, the great scandal on the stumbling block is the cross. It's a stone of offense that will either cause you to trip up or it will be the foundation that you can build your whole life on. It's either one or the other. You'll either build your whole life on this or it will cause you to stumble. Why? The cross is a stumbling block because it says there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You don't just need a minor tweak. You need to be made new. And this is what's required for your salvation to be cured, to be healed, to be transformed, to be redeemed. So if you're going to experience the real Jesus, what do you do? Well, you can follow John's lead. John goes to him. He took his doubts. He took his fears. He took his questions. He took it and he went to him. And so the real question is, all right, well, have you? Have you gone to the real Jesus? Not just some imaginary figment of your imagination, but have you gone to the real, real one? And so if you're not a Christian here in this morning, you know, go 
to the real Jesus. Explore him. Say, I want to know who he really is, not who I think he is or not who I assume other people might think he is. Who is the real Jesus? I haven't heard this much, but I used to hear this often. Uh, people say things like, well, you know, I don't want, you know, I'm not a Christian because, you know, the people, you know, people like you, the church, they just, they just want your money. You know, first, when we first moved in Thoria Park, I remember meeting a guy and telling him I was a pastor. And he was like, oh, that's amazing. You can make so much money doing that. I was like, what? You think so? Mm. I said, well, like, go to the, in one sense, Jesus doesn't care about your money. He wants your heart. He just knows that's the fastest way to it. So go to the real one. And often even Christians, if even John can have his, he needs to have his conception of who Jesus is altered and adjusted and fixed, then for every one of us, there's some area that we're probably not thinking about him rightly. So if you want to know the real Jesus, we go to him, we submit to his word, we ask him to show us who he is. But the beautiful thing is that he says, come to me, come to me. You know, at the very end of this chapter, Jesus issues one of the most beautiful invitations in all of world literature. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's my gift to you. And so we just come, and we say, I want to know you, the real you, not the one I assume, not the one I've constructed, but the real you. And so every week here at Trinity, we come to the table, we come to communion, and that's a physical, tangible way where he's opened up his table and he says, come to me. This is the path. Come and find out who I really am. And the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. and said, this is symbolic. This represents my body. My body is going to be broken for you so you can be made whole and put back together again. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is what is required to cleanse you and make you new and to make you whole. It's blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and I'm doing that for you. And so we come. Here at Trinity, we'll have four stations, two in the front, two in the back. There'll be a gluten-free station. And the way we do it, you, you come to the server, you take the bread, and then you dip. And you come to him and remember those two great gifts that are for us and for our salvation. So I'll pray, and then once our servers are in place, you come. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word to pur uh, purify and purge and cleanse us of our false conceptions of who you are and what you came to do. And we thank you that the real you is so much better than any fake you that we would make up. So help us to know the real you and to hear the real you and to joyfully want to follow and serve the real you all of our days. In your name I pray. Amen.